All right, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see everybody out here. Um, if you're new or visiting, uh, my name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church, and uh, we're glad you're here. If you're not new or visiting, still cool that you're here. Glad you're here. Uh, for those of you who might be newer on the newer side, I think you might have known this even from the first service that you came to, the first second you walked in. Uh, but Zoe is not the fanciest church of all time. Uh, it's the second fanciest. No, I'm just kidding. It's not, we're not a fancy church. We're not a flashy church. We're just trying by grace to be faithful to God's word. And to that end, what we do every week is we just open up the Bible and we preach through it and we go through books at a time. We go through chapters, verses even. We just walk through the Bible verse by verse by verse by verse. And right now we're in a series through the books of Samuel. So we're doing first and second Samuel. This first half in first Samuel, we're calling it after God's own heart. That's the preaching series that we're doing. Uh, so let's get into it. Uh, after God's own heart, if you could open with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms, the book of Psalms. I know it's a little fake out. Psalms 52. We're not doing a different series or anything like that. Psalm chapter 52. And to kind of intro what we're doing here a little bit, I remember I was watching TV years ago. Um, and uh, this was back in the day before streaming, before you could record stuff with TiVo. I don't know if you remember TiVo. Even that is in the past. But back then, okay, all of my uh, 35 plus brothers and sisters here know what I'm talking about. Back then, you just had to watch what was on. Turn the TV on. That's what's there. And there was this random movie that was on. It was a comedy, I think, or maybe it was a drama because it was too, like, not funny to be a comedy and really serious at some parts. But then for a drama, there are way too many jokes. I think Chris Rock was in it or something. So it was a very strange movie. I wouldn't recommend it. I'm not even going to tell you what it was. But at the very end of the movie, at the very end of the movie, Chris Rock and his wife they're talking, and they kind of had a bad marriage, and they're reconciling. And I don't know what happened. Something changed. It was the music or the way they were talking or what they were talking about. But I remember even thinking to myself, it sounds like they're about to start singing. And it wasn't a musical. So I'm just watching it, and lo and behold, after like two seconds, they both start singing, and that's the end of the movie. So we don't have those kind of blessings anymore where you can choose what you want to watch. But the reason why I bring this, out, uh, bring this up, bring up this awesome experience that I experienced is because this is what Psalm 52 is in a sense. Now hear me out. Psalm 52 is the song that we weren't expecting at the end. It's the closing of the story that we spent the past two weeks going through, 1 Samuel 21 and 1 Samuel 22. Now, if you haven't been here or if you're new, let me just recap real quick. At this point in the story of 1 Samuel, David is on the run. He's already been anointed king. He's already defeated Goliath. But Saul has turned against him in jealousy, and Saul wants him dead. And he's exhausted every option. Okay, he's run to Samuel for help. He's gone to his own wife. He's gone to Jonathan. He goes to the priest finally at the tabernacle in the city of Nob. And the priest, they help him. They give him bread. They actually give him the sword of Goliath, which is hanging up there at the tabernacle, the sword that David rightfully won himself. But Saul had eyes at the tabernacle. Doeg, the Edomite, was there, and he's one of Saul's henchmen, one of his chief herdsmen. So David sees him. He sees David. 
Doag goes to report what he has seen to Saul. And Saul is enraged. Saul accuses the priest of God of treachery against him, of treason. And he has Doag kill every single one of the priests of God, save one, and then go to Nob and kill all of the women and the children and even the animals. The thoroughness is scary. And then Psalm 52 is the song that David wrote about the situation afterwards. And we're going to do this a handful of times throughout First and Second Samuel because David, he's the main character in First and Second Samuel in the big scheme of things. And David is also the main author of the Psalms. And David wrote quite a few Psalms about situations in his life, which we will read about, which we will study in the books of Samuel. And this is the first one that we're going to look at. David writes about what happened at Nob. And this might seem a little strange at first, especially with an event like what what we just looked at the past couple of weeks, right? Someone slaughtering all the priests of God doesn't seem like a song that you would write. It might seem unexpected. A song after that, kind of like that movie that I was watching, like why are they singing at the end? But these psalms that David writes about his life experiences, about these events that he sees with his own eyes, these psalms actually give us some incredible insight into things that we would otherwise never get to see ourselves. So let's read the text. It's not that long. Psalm 52 is not one of the most popular psalms from what I could tell online. So you might not even know this psalm that well. And I think that might be good. Okay, you know the story. Let's see what David has to say. Psalm 52, looking at verse 1. To the choir master, a mascal of David, when Doag the Edomite came and told Saul, David has come to the house of Ahimelech. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah. You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living, Selah. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. This is the word of God. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Father, we are thankful for this time in which we can look to your word. God, it's an amazing gift that you have spoken to us, that you have inspired these people to write down your own words for us to read, to hear. And God, I pray that as we read them and as we hear them this afternoon, God, that we would respond in worship with an attitude of humility, that we would want to hear what your word has to say, not because of me, obviously, God, but because this is your word. And I pray, God, that we would be changed. God, I pray that if there are people here in this room who don't know you, God, that they would come to know you through what you have spoken. 
And I pray, God, that for your people here, for those who are godly, as the text says, God, that you would feed their souls with encouragement, with conviction, and with instruction. God, we pray that you would speak. We pray that your spirit would work in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Mark was 15 years old when his father was killed. And I apologize to the kids here in the room, and especially the parents of the kids. But it was a heavy story that inspired the psalm. So we're starting with kind of a heavy story. I think it's appropriate. I won't go too crazy here. But the way the story goes is that Mark's dad owned a bar in a small town, small-ish town. And two men came in one day and they ordered some drinks as you do at the bar. And they played some pool and it seemed normal. But then they went into the back room and then they shot Mark's father and he died. It was murder. At least that's what it seemed to the police. It was murder because nothing was stolen. No money was taken. There was no motive that they could point to. He was just killed. Rumors started floating around. Maybe he had gotten involved in something bad as a bar owner. Maybe he had gotten connected with some shady figures or something like that. But no one knew for sure. No one knew why this happened. And for Mark, all he knew was what happened. That one day, he had a father. He was 15. And then his father was violently taken from the world, from his world. And the question is, how do you process something like that? How are you supposed to respond when something like that happens in the blink of an eye? Mark told all of his relatives, really to anybody who would hear, that he would grow up and he would make the NFL, that he would be a professional football player. And then after he made the NFL, he would track down the men that killed his father and he would talk to them. Now, looking back, and I was reading some of his memoirs, looking back on his younger self, Mark says it was pathetic, really. I mean, he thought of like the most like the strongest person who was still good, which in his mind was an NFL player. And he thought that if I could just become that, that when I found those men, I'd know what to do. Because he felt like so helpless, so hopeless. Like he, he didn't know what to say or what to think. So he thought, if I could just grow up to be that, then I would know how to respond. And the question is, for this psalm, the question is, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to think and to say? How are we supposed to respond? I mean, we know when bad things happen. Bad things happen all the time to people in church, to people in the world, to people in your family. When a family member abuses you or your child, when your pastor who you looked up to, maybe you even read the book that he wrote and he made the whole church buy it and read it. He turns out to be a charlatan. Uh, stay tuned for my book coming out. Just kidding. When a close friend betrays you, Common experience when the nursing home mistreats your elderly parent happens a lot. When someone from your past spreads lies about you, it doesn't have to be so personal too. We live in a world where we're hyper-connected with everything and everyone. We know every single bad thing that happens in the world in real time. We know the worst thing that happens every single day. Just go to the news, turn on your computer, log into Twitter. We go onto Facebook, we see our friends. We see all the good things that happen to them, but also the bad things. You find out about how they got rear-ended and that person hit and ran. He ran away and now they have this huge bill on their car. Or you find out about how they got ripped off. We read about how all the forces in the world are aligning against us. There is so much of that 
online about you, if you knew, if only you knew how bad it was, then you would be scared too. You would be angry too. So the question is, in light of all of these things, in light of the personal things for you, in light of your own experience this week even, how are you supposed to respond? What are you supposed to say? What are you supposed to do when you come face to face with, and we'll call it what it is, with evil, with badness? See, the Psalms, right, are kind of a special book in the Bible. And if you know me, I'm kind of the king of hyperbole. Every book is the craziest book in the Bible. Um, but Psalms really is the craziest book in the Bible, okay? Maybe it's not the craziest, but it's a crazy book. It's very unique. It's a collection of prayers set to music. And the thing about the Psalms that makes them so powerful and so unique is that they really, unlike all the rest of the Bible, aren't just God's word to us, not just God speaking to us, but it's actually God's inspired word from us. And what I mean by that is that it doesn't just tell us what God wants to say to us. It teaches us what God wants us to say to him. It's the Holy Spirit inspiring these people with nature, with a nature like ours, teaching us how to pray and how to think and how to sing. They are divinely inspired, God-breathed responses to God and to the world that he's made. So the Psalms really, they teach us so much. They teach us how to approach God. They teach us how to live with other people. They teach us how to see with God's eyes, how to talk with God's words, and really learn to think God's thoughts after him. So when we turn to the Psalms, we know that there's something good for us. When we go to the Psalms, we know we're going to learn something that we need to learn. Now put it together, and what was the situation? Doag the Edomite, when he told Saul, and Saul did this terrible thing through him. Something evil, one of the most evil, like purely evil things in the entire Bible. And yet David wrote a psalm so that we could see how to respond to it. So let's get into it. The, the, this psalm breaks down pretty neat, neatly into three parts. It doesn't follow like the Selahs, and we'll talk about that another time. But it breaks down pretty neatly into three parts. And David, what he does, is he kind of turns his attention in three directions. So first he looks at the evil itself, the situation, the person. Then he turns his attention to God. And lastly, he turns his attention inward to himself, to us. And that's how we'll follow it. So first, David looks toward the evil, toward the evil itself. Verse 1, why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Right here, right away, we notice that this psalm is kind of interesting. Okay, because if you like the psalms, if you read a lot of psalms, maybe that's your favorite book in the Bible, you know that most of the psalms are prayers directly to God. Dear God, something's happening in my life. Dear God, I need help. Dear God, I trust in you. But this one starts not as a prayer upward to heaven, but as a direct address to a person. This psalm is David speaking directly to this mighty man, this boaster of evil. And we have to understand that there are layers to this. Because what was the context of our event in 1 Samuel? I said what happened, but David was on the run. David was exhausted. That's why he needed bread. He was defenseless. That's why he needed a sword. He was desperate. That's why he went to the priest. That's why he lied. That's why he kind of fudged the truth a little bit. David 
was at his lowest point that he's ever been at in his life. On the flip side, Saul is sitting with all of his men around him, his inner circle. In terms of worldly power, he is strong. Doag is there, and Doag carries out this order with the king's authority. These two men together, ratting out David, carrying out this order of annihilation. These guys are at the top of the world. Doag is the mighty man in question here, and he is on top. No one could stop him. No one could stay his hand. Doag is roaming free. David is out hiding in caves and stuff. See, if we know what happened, we know that it seems like evil has won. And this is important for us to get. It seems like evil has won. If you picture like a million different action movies, the villain is standing over the beaten up, defeated hero, gloating about his victory. David is actually looking up, but not to heaven yet. He's looking up at this person who seemingly has won. But again, there are layers to this. David, even though he is at his lowest point, even though he has heard about this disaster that he couldn't stop, in fact, a disaster that he had a part in causing, he isn't intimidated and he's not defeated. If you look at the text again, he starts off with a question. He says, why do you boast? Why are you so confident? And you've seen this too in a million action movies. You know, when the villain is standing over the hero and gloating about his plan and how he's won. And then the hero smiles a little bit. You know that the hero knows something. And we know that he knows something that the villain has no idea about. And that's exactly it. There's something the villain hasn't accounted for. The second half of verse 1, the steadfast love of God endures all the day. Now, when I was studying the psalm, I was like, this psalm is pretty hard to understand, even to read. It seems disjointed. He's talking about this mighty man, and then he starts talking about how the steadfast love of God endures all day. It seems like a non sequitur at first. What does this have to do with an evil man boasting of evil? What's the connection here? But if you, you got to understand that David knows that even if it feels like all hope is lost, it's never lost. And that sets the tone of this entire psalm. When he is at his lowest, he knows that he can't be stopped. Why? Because in Hebrew, the steadfast love, the hesed, covenantal, loyal love of God remains. Even if he's on the ground, he knows that there's backup coming in. Now, we'll come back to this, but understand for now that this first question actually, when you understand it in context, is actually somewhat sarcastic. There's a tinge of sarcasm here. He says, why are you boasting, mighty man? And mighty man is usually positive. It's like Boaz in the story of Ruth. It's for a warrior. But it's in this context, it's kind of like him saying, like, why are you so confident, you know, hotshot or big man? You know, like he knows that this guy doesn't have what it takes. David is struck down, but he's not destroyed. And again, this is such a good way for us to start a psalm like this. Because... Something terrible has happened. So many lives have been lost. A great evil has occurred. David saw Doag at the tabernacle too, but he wasn't able to stop it. He didn't stop it. The situation looks kind of hopeless. The bad guys won. And this is where I think it's a good place for us to step into the story a little bit. I mean, we can relate to this in our own ways. I mean, maybe we don't have... Uh, actual doag in our lives. But there are so many situations we face in real life as human beings 
where honestly the situation seems kind of hopeless. You know, like people have problems in church. Maybe I know that more than you, but I think if you have relationships in the church, you know that, that people go through stuff in their lives. And if we're trying to, if, if we're being honest, like actually honest, I know some of you guys try to be positive. You try to put a positive spin on it. You try to be hopeful in God, which you should do. I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. But underneath, underneath the smiles and kind of the strong posturing, I think sometimes if we actually think about what's going on in our lives, it feels like we can't do anything. If we have a moment of quiet reflection and think about what, what's actually going on, what we're up against, it's overwhelming. I mean, there's that realization sometimes, and it's very hard to hear as a friend or as a pastor or whatever, as a brother, where the person just realizes, I'm not going to get better. It's not going to happen. Or she is going to get away with it. We can't solve this problem. He's just going to keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and no one is able or willing to stop him. And maybe you think I'm being too vague here, but I think you guys can all think of a time when someone did something to you, something actually malicious, blatantly bad, where they lied to your face, right? And it ruined you in some way, where they lied about you to other people, where they spread rumors about who you were, where they stole from you and the money's just gone now and they seemingly got away with it. I mean, you can think of these examples where something bad happened and there's literally no way forward. You know, the other month I was in California to visit my in-laws and we rented a car, okay, which was terrible. Usually it is terrible all the time, but right now it's really hard to rent a car. So we found a deal online, first mistake, right? Found a deal online um, at this one place. I won't say what it was, um, but it seemed like a pretty good deal. So I went there and we had already found the quote and everything. And I showed him on my phone, this is what I want. And he said, sure, sounds good. And he's like, okay, do you want insurance? And I'm like, no, I do not. I just want the car. Okay, that's all I want. And he's like, okay, sounds good. Just sign this. So I'm like signing on the little keypad. You know what I'm talking about? It doesn't show everything. It just has a little line. So I'm signing it. Then he prints it out and gives me the receipt. And I'm like, hey, this is like $200 more. And he's like, sorry, man, you already signed. So I was like, okay, I guess I'll call customer service. So I call them and it's going on and on and on. I'm hearing the song and I'm the 11th customer for like half an hour. So I looked this up online and all these people had the same experience and they called and they were the 11th customer forever. Okay, they're still waiting. But I was like, I'm not going to wait. Okay, I only have one life to live. So I got off the phone. I just let it go, got into my car, and drove my super expensive rental car for the week. I got ripped off, okay? I'm not a smart guy, like I said last week. I'm not smart. I just lost all that money. And in the moment, I remember I was kicking myself so much because I lost this money. I, I signed something without looking. I was frustrated at their dishonest, dishonest tactics, right? I was like, dude, come on, man. Like, we had a rapport. You were smiling at me. I just overall felt let down. I felt like I let people down. I just felt down. I just felt very low, you know, like I wasted my family's money. And I thought to myself, so this is what people are like, huh? And I had known from seminary that people are sinners and that people are bad. But here, I really felt it. And I was like, dude. And the worst part about it was that there was nothing I could really do about it. See, as the old hymn goes, the wrong seems oft so strong. So often when we actually face something evil or difficult or bad or sinful, someone with malicious intention, 
we don't know what to do about it. Oftentimes we can't do anything about it. I mean, again, if you think about the things that are weighing you down, the things that make you feel hopeless, maybe just the political situation of our country or that one relationship from your past that keeps popping up that just won't go away. Maybe when you think about your own past and how people know who you are and it just keeps coming back again and again and again. And then someone says, just trust God. You kind of feel like, dude, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what it's like. In the moment, of course, I I know I got to trust God with my mind, but it just feels like too much. See, it's easy for someone with an easy life to say that. So that's why Psalm 52, this is why it's not about my own experience. It's not about me. It's about what David says. Because if you know David, and maybe if you're just reading the Psalms, you just skip over the Doeg thing. But if you've been reading First and Second Samuel, First Samuel 21 and 22, then you know that David is a guy who is on the run for his life. He's been betrayed by the king he has only served faithfully. He is living with guilt. He is someone who has just received word of a massacre that he wasn't able to prevent. A people that he knew. A people that helped him. And then he sees the gloating enemy. But the difference with David is that he's not hopeless. In fact, David, when he sees the mighty man boasting over him, he can smile. And see, if we read that, and if we just know this one verse in context, I mean, don't you want that? I think sometimes we can be knocked off the horse way too easily by life. But wouldn't you want to be the kind of person where whatever you face your faith doesn't falter. Whatever you face, you can't be shaken. David has something that we want. He has something that we need. Keep reading. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking what is right. Selah, you love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue. See, in case you think that David felt like because he's so strong, because he's mighty too, that it's no big deal. David thinks that his enemy is pretty bad. He thinks he knows that he's objectively capable of great evil. If you look at the words here, just look at the description, destruction, sharp razor, devour. He uses the word evil twice explicitly. Again, David knows the danger. He recognizes it. He knows what Doag is capable of. He knows the evil that human beings are capable of. He doesn't smile because he underestimates the enemy. Not at all. But notice, okay, notice he zeroes in on one particular aspect of what makes this evil man so evil. And it's not what we might expect. He knows that this guy actually murdered some priests. He murdered people, women and children. But he zeroes in not on his killing spree on the bloodbath at Nob. No, instead he zeroes in on what? You see it? On his speech, on his tongue, his boasting, his deceit, his lying. He even calls him, oh, deceitful tongue. Okay, what's up with this? Okay, why does he do this? Well, first of all, I think what David's doing is he's giving us insider information. Okay, indirectly at least, but he's giving us some insider information. He's filling in the gaps of the story from 1 Samuel 21 and 22. So if you were here, okay, you remember the story. There's not a ton of detail, but right here, what he's telling us, I think, is that more happened at the tabernacle. See, we know from the text in 1 Samuel that David saw Doeg, but here I think he's letting us know that he didn't just see him, that they actually interacted. 
that they talked in some way. There was some communication. Where else would he have lied? He didn't lie to Saul. He told Saul exactly what he saw. He reported accurately what happened. The best guess from the clues is that Doag and David probably talked, and Doag probably made it seem like everything was cool, that everything was all good. You can even imagine it, right? He calls him worker of deceit. Why would he call him that? You can even imagine it. David shows up, and David is one of Saul's top, you know, servants, and so is Doag. They know each other. They're familiar with each other, and he shows up at the tabernacle, and he's like, oh, man, Doeg's here. So he says, hey, Doeg, what's up, man? I'm like, good to see you. I'm just here to talk to the priest. Doeg says, yeah, man, sounds good. He says, how's Saul? And he says, Saul's great. And Saul can't wait to see you. You know, he's giving him the sense of security. And David later says, I knew it, man. I knew that Doeg was going to rat me out. He had that sneaking suspicion. But outwardly, Doag didn't say, okay, sound the alarm, right? We're going to go to Saul right now. Doag played nice until later. Even though all this time he intended to rat him out and rat the priest out, even though it was in him to kill those people. So David put the pieces together after the fact, I'm sure. And it's why he told Abiathar, I knew that this was going to happen. So there's insider information. But this also says something about how to understand evil. I think the reason why he zeroes in on the words is actually a theological reason. See, theologically speaking, it makes perfect sense that David would look to the words that come out of Doag's uh, mouth. You know why? Because out of the mouth comes what? The overflow of the heart. That's what Jesus said. Jesus himself said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. There's a straight line between the tongue and the heart. And we see this progression, actually. David's talking about his words, talking about his speech, his deception. But then he switches to what Doag loves. He says, you love evil more than good. You love all words that devour. He's talking about his heart. See, to the Hebrew mind, the heart wasn't just, you know, the organ that pumps blood. They understood that. It wasn't just the emotions like how we think of it today. The heart was actually who you were on the inside. Your true self, your inner man, that's what they would say. So it was your motivations. It was your priorities. It was your values. See, the Hebrew people, they understood that you could do the right thing with the wrong heart. Do you see what I'm saying? You could do the right action, but you could do it out of pride. You could do it out of malice. So it was always about getting to the heart, who you really are. You can fake it with everyone else, but God sees the heart. The only way that we can actually know a little bit of what goes on in someone else's heart is because, or is by hearing what they say because their heart spills out in their speech. David goes to the heart and he says, Doeg, because you lied, it reveals the evil of your heart. It shows what you truly value. You don't care about what's right and what's wrong and who gets hurt along the way. Your heart is wicked. And as someone once said, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. David just goes right to it. Is the murder bad? Yes, of course. That he killed priests? Doubly so. But David isn't just getting to the action. He's getting to the actor. He's getting to what's inside of this person even. He's saying not just what you did isn't just bad. He's saying you are bad. And usually this is where we turn it around on us, right? Where I would say, look, you got to examine your own heart. We talked about it last week. Log in the eye versus the speck in someone else's eye. Examine the wickedness that you stole away. And here I challenge you. And that's all well and good. 
You know, not saying that that's not true. But right here, right now, understand what David is getting at. He's not saying, examine your own life. What he is saying is you got to understand that there are actual evil people in the world. That's what he's teaching Israel through this psalm. That's what he's teaching us through this word. The evil in this world is not by accident. See, for you guys, you got to know what you're up against. We got to know what we're up against. There is actual bad out there. And understand when evil things happen, that they come from an evil heart. And there are even people like Doeg out there who enjoy, who love evil more than they love good. And this leads to the second point. Don't be naive. There are evil people. This leads to the second point. David turns his attention from man to God, from man to God. So he looks at the evil first and he calls it for what it is. It is evil. He is evil. But then he switches his attention from this person, the situation, this thing to God. See, David sees the evil for what it is, but he also sees the God of the universe for who he is. Verse five, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. Selah. I mean, it is a little bit scary. It is a little bit scary to think about the fact that there is evil in the world. Honestly, I think even for Christians who talk about sin a lot, who talk about depravity and things like this, I don't know if we fully accept that all the time. In fact, I think we do the opposite a lot of times. We kind of go the route of moral relativity, you know, like we fall into this kind of relative look at evil. Do you see what I'm saying? So what I'm saying is someone does something bad and you say, well, we're all sinners. And it's true. But I think instead of seeing our evil for what it is, which it should be the case, we go the opposite route and we make their evil seem less evil. I would do the same thing. So I guess it's not that bad. That's the subtext. David sees evil for what it is. Now go back in his history a little bit. You know that he knows this. I mean, he's the one who faced the giant in the valley. The guy who defied the armies of the living God. He has been hunted by a psychotic king bent on his destruction. He has been face to face with a man who had it in him to betray and murder the innocent. I mean, David has looked evil in the face, called it for what it is. But again, David is still so confident. Why? Because he knows God. He knows God. And my fear is, my fear is that some of us here, we are confident, but not because of God. Maybe we're confident in our own strength. I can deal with any problem. He's a bad man. I'm a badder man. Right? That's what I tell myself in the mirror every day. Just kidding. Every other day. My fear is that some of us are confident in ourselves. That we can handle any problem. That we can somehow figure out a solution to anything that comes our way. And then some of us were confident in our fellow man. In the goodness of humanity. That people really are decent and no one will want to take advantage of me or hurt me. If they did, there was probably a good reason. My fear is that our confidence is misplaced or worse, that our confidence is really ignorance. And we're just hoping we won't encounter anything 
truly bad. And if you're like my generation, right, we didn't live through wars like maybe people did in the early 1900s, seeing the horrific things that human beings are capable of. I think there can be some ignorance. We can be naive to think that maybe things have gotten better. And when we face that one experience, that one event, that one face-to-face encounter with evil, it wrecks our faith. You know, it's funny, at the rental car company, one more thing, um, and I left them a bad review too, which I never do, but they asked me. They said, please review me, and I was like, with pleasure. Um, but they, uh, they told, the guy told me, to my face, he said, look, it's L.A., gas is crazy expensive. And I looked out the window, and gas was like 450 it's insane. Um, so he said, gas is actually cheaper right now at our rental car company than outside at Chevron or whatever. So he said, just bring it back. Don't bother to fill it up beforehand. So I went through the whole debacle, right, where I was calling them on the phone and stuff. So I didn't trust them. So on the way back, I stopped at Costco and I got gas for like 389 or something <laughs> crazy like that. And I got there and then the guys are checking out the gas meter, you know, when I, when I returned it. And then they said, oh, okay, you filled it up. So that'll be $0 at $7.80 a gallon. I was like, $7.80? You're going to charge me $7.80 a gallon? So the guy straight up lied to my face. Good thing I didn't trust him this time. But the funny thing is, yeah, they asked me to leave any comments or feedback. And I gave them like one star. And then I said, I got two words for you. Morally bankrupt. And I'm a pastor. No, I didn't say that. Said, and my name is Eric Lau, and I'm not that happy about this. <laughs> now, I'm not saying everyone is always out to get you all the time, right? Not that everyone is as bad as they can be. Not that everyone is morally bankrupt, that they're at zero. That's not what the Bible teaches about sin and evil. But the truth is, sometimes they are. So you got to keep your eyes open. And part of the reason why it bothered me so much is because I just wasn't doing my due diligence, I was too trusting in kind of a naive way, and I'm kicking myself about it. That's why you can't trust me, totally. But you can trust David, because David's eyes are always wide open. That's the thing about David. David is not a naive guy. He's young at this point. He is not the king yet, but he knows what's in people's hearts. He's seen humanity at its worst. And yet, this is why it's so powerful that he's not broken by it. And that's because he knows the power of the two words that start verse 5. But God. But God. See, God himself is the great contrast. Look at these images that David uses, language we don't really see a whole lot of in the Bible. First he says, but God will break you down forever. And the word for break you down is the word for demolition. God is the wrecking ball that will shatter any defense. Now, of course, there were no wrecking balls at this time. But this is the term that they would use when they would tear down a building or tear tear down a pillar or a wall. No matter how strong you are, you can be made of solid stone. God can break through. Second, keep reading. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. This is a violent image if you stop and meditate on it, but it's appropriate. The Bible spares us the gory details this time, but really this is exactly what Doag did to other people. He slaughtered the priest in cold blood, but then he went to Nob and he went to the tents of these families, of these people, and he just busted in, snatched them out, killed people, ignoring their pleas for mercy, cries for help. Our homes are supposed to provide us with a sense of security. We're protected from the elements and from random animals coming in and people. 
But Doeg shattered that illusion for Nob. Now David turns the tables. He says, look, no matter who you are, no matter where you live, even if you're surrounded by all of Saul's warriors, even if you're a strong man yourself, God cannot be resisted or stopped. There is no security system on earth, no weapon formed by man that could stay the hand of Almighty God. Keep reading. One of the phrases that I love in the Psalms is this next, or is in this next line, the land of the living. What it says is, he will uproot you from the land of the living. And he's talking about this life, this plane of existence before death. And the image is of a plant or of a tree just being ripped out by the roots. Like we had this tree that got struck by lightning, or it was before we moved into our old house, um, but it was dying and it was kind of falling over, so we had to remove it. And you can't just rip out a tree. Right? Even if you're as strong as me, right? you can't do it. I'm kidding. Okay, you, you see me, but if you're listening on the recording, I'm not that strong. So I, even if you're the strongest person in the world, you can't rip out a tree. In fact, even if you have the machines of man, right, our greatest inventions, you know that that's not what they do. Right? They chop it down and then they grind the stump if you pay a little bit extra. Because you can't just rip a tree out by the roots. They're too deep. They're too strong. What David is saying here is that God will just rip you right out, dude. Like a little weed. will rip you out of the ground. That's what God can do to anyone. And if there's one super helpful thing that David does throughout these images is that he zooms out the camera way out. He makes us consider the bigger picture, the biggest picture. He stretches the timeline to eternity. There is a land after the land of the living. The afterlife, eternity. There is a forever, as the first part of verse 5 talks about, and your forever will be determined by the judgment that every single person that we all face after we die, Hebrews 9. All are appointed to die, and all will face judgment. See, David, he's praying the long game here. See what I'm saying? It's not, okay, God's going to show up right now and just avenge everything that just happened, he says, you'll get what's coming. God will break you down forever. And what you will face is a lot worse than temporary vengeance in this life. See, can you see why David smiles a little bit, even though he has taken one of the biggest L's that he has ever taken in his entire life? Because he knows that when he stretched the timeline all the way to eternity, that no one ever gets away with it. Think about that for the person that has wronged you. Think about that for the thing that troubles you, the thing that's on your heart right now, the thing that you feel you can't do anything about. A person who's just gossiping about you all the time with anyone who can hear, that one person who has been judging you, that one person who hurt you in your past and you can't find them, no one ever gets away with it. That old hymn I quoted, the wrong seems oft so strong. The whole verse goes like this. This is my father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. God will judge the living and the dead. Every sin will be answered for. God is good and he hates evil and he is righteous and just and he will punish all evil and all evildoers. Now pause here for a second. How does that make you feel? I mean, just looking out, I mean, I don't know what you guys are thinking. Sometimes I literally have no idea what you're thinking um, or what you're dreaming about. Just kidding. 
what do you think? What do you think when I talk about the judgment of God, God breaking people down forever? What do you think? What comes to mind? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it happy? Is it sad? Thanks, Pastor Seuss, okay? Is it that happy face emoji with a single tear? This is how you should feel. Kind of both. Kind of all over the place. And we see that right here. This is a terrifying but also relieving truth. Verse 6. He says, after God judges, the righteous shall what? See and fear and shall laugh at him, saying. God has an audience in the psalm, the righteous, his people. But when they see it, what's their first reaction? Their first reaction is fear. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And if you think about it logically, if God is stronger than the strongest, most evil person in the world. If God can just rip up a villain from the roots, out of the ground, break into his tent without any effort, that makes him a little scary too, wouldn't you say? We should fear. You know, earlier I said it wasn't the time for self-examination. Now is that time. If God will punish all evil and all evildoers... How do you feel about that personally? I mean, how can you not be afraid? You never did anything wrong in your life. Like we talked about last week, you're not the villain in someone else's story. You never lied before. The Psalms are arranged, okay? They're not in chronological order. In fact, one of the most famous Psalms is the Psalm right before this one, Psalm 51, which David wrote way later after the worst thing that he ever did, when he cheated on his wife, stole another man's wife, who was one of his most loyal men, and then he had him killed. Psalm 51 is David's repentance after his greatest sin. And then Psalm 53, right after our psalm, is the psalm where he says, no one is good. There is none who does good at all. See, Psalm 52 is sandwiched between two psalms that point the finger right back at us. And what they tell us is that even the best of us are nearly good enough. So fear God. That's part of it. Fear God, guys. I think the reason why some of us fear the world so much, let me just offer this up for you. Why some of us have so much anxiety, why we fear the bad guys, why we stay up at night, why we think about the worst case scenario again and again and again, why we're debilitated by fear is because we don't actually think God is that scary. You say, trust God. And you're like, I know, I know, I know. But what can God do to help me? God can do anything and everything. We don't fear God enough. He's not big enough in our own minds. Luke 12, 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. That's what Jesus said. So fear him. And then after that, laugh. Laugh, verse 6, that's what it says. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him. 
This isn't a nervous laughter, feeling scared of the evil man. It's not a merciless, heartless laughter that hates this man personally. No, this is the laughter of relief. In context, if you're so scared of God, this is the laughter of relief. I mean, think about it. When a car comes so close to hitting you, and if you had just stepped an inch to the side, you would have gotten clipped, maybe even killed. There's almost a disbelief there. Kind of like a laughter, like, oh, dude, this is crazy. I almost died. You can only smile and chuckle a little bit at how lucky you were that you were at the right place at the right time. And that's exactly what's going on here. If you look at verse 7, see the man who had not made God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. The righteous get it. They aren't more deserving than the evil man. They just know that they were in the right place at the right time. And the evil man wasn't. They sought refuge in God. He sought refuge in his own self-sufficiency. So before we move on to the last point, and we'll do that quick, let me ask one more question. For you, where is your refuge? This question determines everything about this psalm, how you can take this psalm, how you can appropriate this psalm for your own life. Because if your refuge is in yourself, then you are actually the mighty man who boasts of evil. The psalm is actually against you. But if you have made the refuge, or if you have made your refuge God himself, then there is nothing more comforting than the news that God will take care of every wrong. Where is your refuge? On a long enough timeline, all of us will be judged by God, as every person who has ever lived has been judged. And God is holy and righteous. I'm warning you now, for your own sake, he will not turn a blind eye to sin. So have you sought refuge in grace Or are you living on borrowed time? When the flood came, only Noah and his family were saved. And you know why that was? Because they were in the boat. Okay, it's not a trick question. They were in the ark when the rain started. You don't know how long your life is going to be. And some of us, I'll just be real here. Okay, I'm not targeting anybody, but some of us, we're playing at religion. It's just in name, it's just in word, but it's not in our hearts. It's a hobby. We haven't taken up our cross to deny ourselves and follow after Jesus. You haven't actually surrendered who you are to God. And your time will come before you know it. When it starts raining, it's too late already. If you're in Christ, you will be safe. If you're not, then you won't be. So what's it going to be? Where's your refuge going to be? And this leads to the third and final point, himself. David considers himself at the very end. First, look at the situation for what it is, then look to God for who he is. Now look at yourself. Verse 8, But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. It's the exact opposite image of the man who is uprooted. He is a planted, fruitful tree, a staple of the promised land, an olive tree, green and healthy, planted in the sacred soil of the house of God. This is what it's like to trust in the steadfast love of God. Keep reading verse 9. I will thank you forever because you have done it. I don't know if you thought this when we read it earlier, but done what? And that's what I thought when I read this psalm. Thank you that you have done it. I don't know what you're talking about. It reads weird in English. But what David is getting at, actually, is that even though he doesn't know specifically what God is going to do, he knows for sure that God is going to do something. 
He's thanking him in advance. He doesn't know what it is going to be, but thank you because I know for sure that you are going to do it, whatever it is, and what you do is good. And then he closes it, closes it out with these words, verse 9, I will wait for your name for it is good in the presence of the godly. It ends with waiting, and he ties a bow on top. He doesn't trust God because of circumstances. He trusts in God because of God's character. He doesn't trust in God because of his circumstances. He trusts in God because he trusts in God's character. He knows God's character. He knows that his name is good. Same way that my name is Jesse. Jonathan Edwards was a Puritan pastor way back in the day. And you might know him, actually. Uh, I remember in high school, we read about him in American history during like the Great Awakening and stuff. And he preached this sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, which is a fire sermon, pun intended, Um, But it's a pretty good sermon about the wrath of God. It's what everyone knows him about. People associate Jonathan Edwards with wrath. But Jonathan Edwards was actually a great pastor. In fact, he was more than that. He was a missionary. He was a philosopher, an author. Some people actually say that Jonathan Edwards was probably the smartest person who was ever born on American soil. He's that influential. But his first sermon that he ever preached wasn't about wrath, wasn't about being smart. His first sermon that he ever preached was called Christian happiness. And he asked the question, how can the Christian be happy? And he had three points. And I want to just share those points with you real quick. The first point says, how can a Christian be happy? Our bad things will turn out for good. And he went to texts like Romans 8, for we know that for those who love God, all things will work for the good. Point two, Our good things can never be taken away from us. Our true blessings are actually eternal. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Point three, and the best things are yet to come in eternity. See, the thing is, Christian, when you're confronted with the evil in this world, there is a solution. It's him. John 16, 33, what we read for the scripture, in the world you will have tribulation. You will. It's going to happen. You will face evil and difficulty, but take heart, Jesus said, I have overcome the world. So guys, are you planted in the right soil? You might be asking, what does it mean to be planted in the house of God? Do you seek the presence of God in your life? It's not complicated. Do you read his word? Do you listen to it? Do you pray? It sounds like Christianity 101, but you'd be shocked at how many Christians just don't do this. They're not planted at all. You can see the roots above the soil. Are you planted? Are you trust in God's steadfast love? Are you confident that he will do it? Because you know who he is. It's not about circumstances. Stretch out the timeline. It's about God's character, and he will make every bad thing turn to good. All your good things will last, and there are better things in the future. And do you believe that God's name itself is good? The question is, do you actually know God? Have you been introduced to him? And we know that God's name is Yahweh. I'm not trying to be theologically incorrect here. But the way that he is being described here, his name is good. He is truly good. It's his identity. Do you know that? And one last thing. Spend time with God, but one last thing. David brings up, at the very end, you see this, the presence of the godly. He isn't alone. 
And Christian, know this as a hopeful thing first and then maybe even a convicting thing for you. But as a hopeful thing, know that as a Christian, you're never alone. There are always people. When Elijah thought he was alone, do you guys remember that? He's like, there's no one left. I'm the only one who follows God. God says, no, there's still thousands more that I preserve. As a Christian, you always have the church. Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The church is his body. You have fellow saints to walk with, to wait with. But there's something convicting about this too, I think. I'll say this and then we'll close. When we planted this church in Texas, um, I came from California. I'm just confessing that. I already said that I rented a car there. Um, I know that that's a negative thing. Um, In so many ways, though, I will say this, Texas is better. Um, And I think you guys all know that, especially those of you guys who moved here. You know you came here for a reason. And there are a lot of good things, right? It's, It's better for the family in a lot of ways. Maybe it's easier to be a Christian. Even you go to different places and they're playing Christian music. And I go to the coffee shop and they say, what do you do for work? And I say, I'm a pastor. And they say, cool, I go to church too. Instead of judging me like they would in California. ton of blessings to that. But there's one drawback that I've seen. I found that in California, the fellowship was closer. In general. Okay, I'm not judging every single person. The fellowship was closer though in general. It was tighter. And I was talking to a brother about this this week. And he was saying, he's from Texas, he was saying that I think it's because in California, the line between light and dark is a lot clearer. Here you can kind of go out and you're kind of like in the light. It's a little light everywhere you go. There's always kind of a Christian presence. You don't feel like you need to go to church on Sunday. I remember feeling that sometimes. Like I was getting beat up by the world in California a little bit, that I needed to go to church, that I needed to go to small group or Bible study, that I wanted to go to church on Sunday where I could just be free and talk about God and worship, and hear the word. But here I feel like you don't feel like that need as much sometimes. It's not about the Texans themselves, it's just about the environment. I think sometimes we think that we can just interact with Christians at the coffee shop, or at work, or wherever, with our family members, which is good too. But we never actually pursue the presence of the godly heart just like not reading the Bible, not praying. We don't pursue fellowship. We don't pursue being with other people. So let me say this. And, and you know, it's good, you know, that it's easier to be a Christian here. But let me just say this. If you're struggling to wait for the Lord, if you're disheartened or discouraged or discontent, if you're feeling even despairing about the evil in the world, and maybe it's not the evil in your life, but it's just the evil out there, the evil you see online, Maybe what you're missing are the simplest things. Maybe what you're missing is you're just not reading the Bible, you're not praying, and you're not fellowshipping. We'll close here. I started with Mark. I started with Mark and his father, and it's a sad story. At 15, Mark said he'd become an NFL player and then confront his father's killers. He didn't end up becoming an NFL player, turns out, but he did end up becoming an investigative reporter. And the reason why he became that is because he wanted to find his father's killers. So he, he did like crazy stuff, man. He moved his family back to their hometown under like different names so that he could kind of anonymously do research just in case his dad was caught up in some bad stuff. I mean, it was an obsession for him. He wrote a book about it. And I read the review of the book. I didn't read the book. And the review said this book is way too long, but still good though. But you can see even in that review, 
that he had just so much to think about. Like This had consumed his entire life. He had written 500 pages about his father's killer. Eventually, he kind of gave up. And that's kind of where I learned the story. But I was researching more this week. And it turns out, more recently than the book, he had gotten a lead about a possible connection to his father's killers. And he, he wrote like this article about it. It's kind of interesting. Um, some of you guys are researchers, so you'll probably tell me that there's even more to the story later. But I'll tell you what I read. But he was driving to meet this woman, who was an old woman at this time, now called Sue Gage. And for his entire life, since he was 15, he's like in his 40s now, his entire life he had imagined what it would be like to confront his father's killer. And there was actually a police sketch because people had seen those guys come into the bar. So he had pictured it in his mind, like slick back hair and a mustache. And, you know, like he was this guy who looked a certain way with a certain build. But now he's going to go confront this old lady. And he shows up, and it's not what he expects at all. Like he kind of is like, okay, so why would you kill my father? She's like, I didn't kill your father. And I gave those guys a gun, but they weren't. And, and it got weird. It started going in circles. She was denying things. He was accusing things. And then finally, she just said, you know what? You got to get over it, dude. She didn't say, dude. That's how I talk. Get over it. Dead is dead. And that was kind of like the end of the conversation. And that was that, right? He drove away. And I was reading like his reflections. And I was like, damn, this is kind of sad because he was trying to make peace with it himself. He's like, you know, it's just the journey on the way. This formed me into the man I became. You know, I just got to let it go. But clearly, like, he's lost, right? He doesn't know what to do. And I think that that's how it often is. No answers, right? No hope. Like we have like these situations in our lives. There's a cruel and different world. And then people eventually, they get tired of your problems and they say, get over it. Dead is dead. But the thing is, that's not how it has to be. In fact, if you look at the script at the top of the psalm, one more time, we'll end at the beginning. David says, to the choir master, a masculine of David. Now, there was no choir when Doeg killed all of those priests. There was no choir until Saul is dead and David becomes the king in Jerusalem all those years later. So clearly what David did was he saved this song in his back pocket for all these years and then he brought it out later for everyone so that they could learn to smile in the face of evil just as he learned. Now, a masculine is a musical term, but it's related to the word for instruction, for wisdom. It's to teach us. He wanted this psalm to be something that could instruct us on how to have hope in this world. Because the truth is, the wrong seems often so strong, I know. But brothers and sisters, this is our Father's world. May we never forget that God is the ruler yet. Will you pray with me? Let's pray. <clears throat> God, I pray, God, that as your people, we would have hope in you. God, we know that we are sinners, that there is evil in our own hearts. But God, we know that there is salvation in Jesus Christ. And God, I pray for those who have sought refuge in Christ. I pray, God, that they would see that that refuge extends to everything. God, that they don't need to fear the evil things of this world. They don't need to despair in the face of the evil that they face. God, that they don't need to give up. And I pray that they won't. God, I pray that you would help us 
to be hopeful, God, in every circumstance. God, we know that you are working out your plan for good. So we look to you. All glory to you, Father. Praise in Christ's name. Amen.